Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And once again, we say hello to Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, Independence Day approaches. Let me be the first to wish you a happy one, even though we're still a couple of days away. Well, and the same to you. And I know in the past you've been celebrating that in Utah. Now you're in Idaho. But much of the same spirit of American independence is there in both, I am sure. And caution in that it's a very dry year in both states. So uh, any any fireworks as part of the celebrations are going to have to be watched very, very closely. Nobody wants to be that guy who starts the hillside on fire. And the same here in Alabama, even though obviously we're not as dry as you are, but here in Alabama, we just did, our soil does not hold moisture like it does, say, in the ever Midwest. And we had one of the wettest springs that I can remember. And after all of that, then a couple of day, a couple of weeks of no rain and we're in a drought. But anyway, I'm not sure what the forecast is for the weekend here, but it's a pleasant day today. Anyway, we have the Independence Day coming up, of course. And so as we look to the Constitution classroom, we certainly want to focus on the Declaration of Independence as well. And many people need to understand what the relationship is between the Declaration and the Constitution. And the answer is that they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. You might put it this way, that the Declaration establishes the nation. The Constitution establishes the government. And when Abraham Lincoln says in his Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, four score and seven or 87 years ago, doesn't go back to 1787, the year of the Declaration of Independence, of the Constitution, it goes back to 1776, the year of the Declaration. And since we're going to be looking at the Declaration of Independence, it would make sense that we would focus upon the primary author of the Declaration, that being, of course, Thomas Jefferson. But I'm going to pull a surprise here. And instead... When Jefferson was preparing his first inaugural address, he made the statement in meditating the matter of that address, I often asked myself, is this exactly in the spirit of that patriarch of liberty, Samuel Adams? And I thought it'd be very good to focus on Samuel Adams here today. A lot of people think of Samuel Adams and All they think about is a brewery that they see in airports, and that's unfortunate because although Samuel Adams' father was a malter, possibly a brewer as well, that certainly was not what he's primarily famous for, nor by any means is that what Sam Adams is famous for, and I rather regret that they are using the name of this great patriot to try to advance something that I don't really think is that healthy for the nation. But Sam Adams is sometimes referred to as the father of the American Revolution, 
And Encyclopedia Britannica says of him that Samuel Adams did more than any other American to arouse opposition against English rule in the colonies. World Book Encyclopedia acknowledges that he, that is Sam Adams, became the leading speaker in the cause of American independence. However, I think there's something missing here. First of all, once again, let's get back to this relationship between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And as we say, the Declaration establishes the nation, the Constitution establishes the government. But beyond that, we should also note that the Declaration sets forth the basic ideals on which this nation is founded. The idea of the laws of nature and of nature's God, the idea that all are created, not evolved equal, that all are endowed not by their government with certain negotiable privileges, but by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and these basic principles of what independence is all about. The Declaration sets forth those principles. The Constitution sets forth a practical means by which the ideals of the Declaration of Independence can be realized in an imperfect society of people like you and me. And anyway, so in the Constitution, we see the branches of government, we see the separation of powers in those various branches, the checks and balances, the rights reserved to the people, and so on. But the glowing language of the Declaration is what sets forth the nation's basic ideals. And the Declaration is every bit as much part of the organic law of the United States as is the Constitution. In the U.S. Code Annotated, you will see it right there at the beginning of the code as part of the organic laws of the United States, the Declaration, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, and then the Northwest Ordinance. And anyway, so the Declaration is very important because that's what establishes our nation. The Constitution is what preserves our nation as things were degenerating into anarchy and chaos. And I would say that, well, we certainly should be celebrating the Declaration of Independence and the War for Independence on July 4th. September 17th should be an American holiday, and it is, but it should be an American holiday celebrated every bit as much as July 4th, because September 17th is Constitution Day. But with that in mind, then, let's look at this man, Samuel Adams, the man who many call the father of the American Revolution, but who has another title, too, that a lot of people forget about. A lot of people don't realize what Sam Adams' reason was for wanting American independence. He is often referred to also as the last of the Puritans. And you think of the Puritans as they came over to America with the Arabella landing in Boston in 1630, and those who were closely related to them came to Plymouth 
in the Mayflower in 1620. And we think of the ideals that they came to establish, the Mayflower Compact, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, and the other works that clearly establish American law squarely upon the Bible and most especially upon the book of Deuteronomy. But as we move into the late 1600s and into the early 1700s, we start seeing something of a fading of that Puritan zeal as second and third generation Puritans came along. You see people that were still involved with the church, but didn't have the same zeal that their original forefathers who came over here had. And anyway, so a lot of people were distressed about this. But in the 1740s, we have a great religious revival in America, a revival that we call the First Great Awakening. We have preachers like George Whitfield from England, preachers like Jonathan Edwards of Massachusetts, George Tennant, and others throughout the American colonies who preached the faith of the old founding fathers, did much to restore America to the faith of those founding fathers. And Americans of this time, in a country where we had a population of perhaps a little bit more than three million, but you had Americans by the hundreds of thousands at this time, either dedicating their lives to Jesus Christ or rededicating their lives to Jesus Christ. And that had a great effect upon America. And there are probably few Americans that it affected more than it affected Samuel Adams. And so, after we come back from our break, Let's take a look at this man, Samuel Adams, and his boyhood in Boston, his influence throughout America, but especially in New England. And let's see how he is so justly called the father of the American Revolution and also the last of the Puritans. back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are here today with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as the Independence, Hol- Independence Day holiday approaches, it's great to hear some of the names of the central figures behind the uh, Declaration of Independence. And uh, I'm anxious to learn a little bit more about Samuel Adams. That's a name I hear a lot, but I don't feel like I know him very well. Well, let's try to get to know Samuel Adams a little bit better here because He is a very, very important founding father. He is the second cousin of John Adams, who became our second president and one of the greatest scholars in American history. And a few weeks from now, we're going to be talking about John Adams as well. Sam Adams may have been a little bit more radical than John Adams. John Adams believed in American independence, but you may recall that at the time of 
the so-called Boston Massacre, when British officers were accused of having fired upon American colonists, John Adams came to their defense, claiming that they fired in self-defense. And Sam Adams, his cousin, was somewhat critical of him for this at first, because he knew that John Adams believed in American independence, just as he did. What are you doing defending those British? But as the trial went on, Sam Adams came to see the wisdom and justice in what his cousin was doing, and he recognized that if we believe in American ideals, we certainly have to grant those basic ideals of due process of law and the like, even to those who might be considered enemies of America at the time. But Sam Adams was a little bit older than John Adams. He was born on the 16th of September of 1722 in Boston. His father, as we said earlier, had been a beer manufacturer, but this was a time when water was not really very clean and there had to be some means of preventing infection. But he was also a very pious congregational church deacon, pillar in the church as well. In fact, he was commonly known as Deacon Adams. He was an official in the church. He was a town constable. He was a town assessor, select man. He was also a member of the Massachusetts General Court or General Assembly, in effect, a state legislator. But one of the things that Deacon Adams was most famous for was that he was the head of a group called the Boston Caucus Club, and it met often at his house. Now, the Caucus Club was passed off to the British as being a place for the singing of hymns, and they did sing hymns there, but some had suggested that the Caucus Club actually produced more revolutionaries than songbirds, because besides gathering for the singing of hymns, they would also gather to discuss political issues. And one thing that was prominent in people's minds in the 1770s was the issue of independence. Now, Samuel Adams had grown up in his father's house, had grown up at these caucus club meetings that his father would host at their home, and he would listen to these with great interest. Undoubtedly, they had a great influence on him, and they had a great effect on what kind of person Sam Adams became and what his initial beliefs were. But Sam Adams, as we said, became a very strong believer in American independence. But question to be asked is, why did he believe in independence? Did he just want to get rid of those British? Did he just want to make America independent? No, there was something much more than that. As a Puritan, he wanted Puritanism to thrive in America in the 1700s, as it had in the 1600s. And as he saw it, what was preventing Puritanism from thriving was British control. Now, when he was a young boy, Sam Adams, at the age of 14, attended Harvard. Harvard was a lot different then from what it is today. In those days, Harvard was established as a 
Divinity School, and one of its primary purposes was training young men for the ministry. Sam Adams attended Harvard, and we read from his biographer, Miller, while he was at Harvard College, the Great Awakening swept over the country, and Harvard became a new creature filled with devout young men who had experienced the new birth. George Whitfield was welcomed to New England as an angel of God and messenger of Jesus Christ. And there were few students at Cambridge able to resist his hot gospeling. Cambridge is where Harvard was. Harvard again became a citadel of righteousness, and the clergy exulted over the sweet work going on at Cambridge. When Whitfield first visited the college, he was dismayed by the laxity he found. Tutors did not pray with their pupils, and their favorite theologian was Tellison, whom Whitfield declared knew less of Christianity than of Mahomet. But after the religious awakening of 1740, it was said that only voices of prayer and praise were to be heard in students. And Tellison and Clark were cast aside for Flavel and the Mathers, Cotton Mather and Increased Mather. Indeed, the piety of the college became so formidable that even diverse gentlemen's sons who came to Harvard prepared to spend four years in sloth and pleasure were suddenly seized with remorse and became so zealous for Christ's cause as to devote themselves entirely to studies of divinity. In Boston, where the congregational clergy had for many years past seen the devil making long strides, the Great Awakening brought about a week of Sabbaths, taverns, dancing schools, and assemblies, which have always proved unfriendly to serious godliness, were deserted for prayer meetings and sermons, and religious con conversation became almost fashionable. At every opportunity, Whitfield put a damp upon polite diversions and beseeched his hearers to shun the snare Satan had laid for them in fashionable dress. His exhortations produced startling changes in Boston. Young men and women cast off their finery and walked along the fashionable Boston Mall, built an imitation of St. James Park in London, wearing the somber dress seen in the heyday of Puritanism. Sam Adams was taken up by Puritanism in those days back when he's a teenager, back here in the 1740s. And Miller says that reestablishing Puritanism in America was the main goal of Sam Adams in working for American independence. He says, Sam Adams never forgot those stirring days during the Great Awakening when Whitfield thundered in the pulpit against assemblies and balls, and New Englanders seemed to turn the clock back to the time of Winthrop and Cotton. The glimpse Adams caught of Puritanism in 1740 had profound influence upon his later career. It became one of his strongest desires to restore Puritan manners and morals to New England. In his eyes, the chief purpose of the American Revolution was to separate New England from the decadent mother country in order that Puritanism might again flourish as it had in the early 17th century. Adams hoped to do by means of a 
political revolution, what George Whitfield had done through a religious awakening. Puritanism was his goal. Revolution, his method of attaining it. And so that is the goal of Sam Adams in working for the American Revolution to reestablish Puritanism in America. And we'll see how he did so after the break. Once again, we are back. Welcome to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and we're talking about uh, the founders, particularly. We've been talking about Samuel Adams, and you know, Colonel, I've heard the the term Puritanism in kind of a negative term, like, well, if somebody's having fun, the Puritans are upset by that. But what you're describing to me sounds like uh, this is more like the foundational um, ethic that uh, that underlied everything that uh, that the founding generation did. In other words, it's not such a bad thing. No, I would say Puritanism on the whole was a very good thing. And, you know, as far as the idea that some, some American cynic once said that the Puritan lived in constant concern that maybe somebody somewhere was having a good time. <laughs> we can't allow that because God doesn't want that. Actually, that's very much a distortion of what Puritanism was. Puritans were joyful people. Their hymns reflect this. Their lives reflect it. But when we think about Puritan, we think of the term purify. And purify had more to do with doctrine than it did with lifestyle. They were concerned that in the England of the 1600s, that after the Elizabethan settlement, as they call it, that you could believe just about anything you want and practice just about anything you want, so long as you called yourself Church of England and you had some that would be virtually Roman Catholic, but if they called themselves England, they were Church of England, and you had some that would be almost as low church as a Baptist, and again, you could preach virtual Baptist doctrine so long as you called yourself Church of England. But The Puritans thought that that was being way too lax, that we need to purify doctrine. And so part of their reason for coming to America was that they wanted to build strength here in America so that they could return to England and then ultimately purify the English church. And here in America, yes, they wanted to establish a state church. They wanted what they called a holy commonwealth, which they described as the community of the redeemed under the rulership of the elect. And if you wanted to be involved in civic government in the New England communities and so on, you had to be in the church. And their view was that people who were not willing to be part of that theology and part of that lifestyle, had perfect freedom. Perfect freedom to leave New England and not come back. Their attitude was, look, 
we came all the way across the ocean to establish our holy commonwealth here. If you want to be part of us, fine. If you don't, go down to Georgia or go to Virginia or go to Pennsylvania. Go anywhere but here. And you can kind of see their point of view. Now, you also have what we call the pilgrims. And the pilgrims were a little bit different. They were very much like the Puritans in their theology, theology that we would describe as Calvinistic. But unlike the Puritans, they said, forget about trying to purify the Church of England as a lost cause. That'd be kind of like trying to keep the Titanic afloat. Rather, what we need to do is separate from it and establish a church of our own. And so in England, they were called dissenters or separatists. And in America, they were called the pilgrims. Anyway, but their theology was very much the same. And by the early 1700s, the pilgrims had pretty well melted into Puritan society, and the distinctions by that time were pretty much gone. But there's another thing that I think characterizes Samuel Adams' thinking as well, and that's that he identified America with early Rome. And you recall that early Rome was a virtuous society, not a Christian society, but a virtuous society. They stressed the stern old Roman virtues, frugality and morality and the like, honesty, hard work, and so on. Those were the things that would build Rome to what it was. And then when Rome begins to degenerate into an empire in the first century BC, in the days of Julius Caesar, many of the old Romans see the old Roman Republic as disintegrating and being replaced by an empire and old Roman morals and manners falling apart and being replaced by immorality and licentiousness. In fact, many thought that the real problem with Rome in that day was it was adopting Greek culture, and that Greek culture is what ultimately destroyed Rome. Well, Miller, the biographer for Sam Adams, puts it this way when he summarizes Adams' thinking. In Adams's mind, a Roman senator would have quickly made himself at home in 17th century Puritan New England, because Rome and New England were spiritually built upon common ground. Adams became known as the Cato of the American Revolution. You recall that in the days of the fading Roman Republic, some of those senators that decried the trend toward empire and the rise of the Caesars and so on, some of those were Cato, particularly Cato the Elder, but Cato the Younger as well, and also Marcus Tullius Cicero. And anyway, Adams became known as the Cato of the American Revolution because from youth to old age, he preached the necessity of returning to an earlier and simpler way of life. His first revolt was against materialism, and his first hatreds were against those whom he believed hostile to the rebirth of the Puritan or old Roman spirit in America. That was the spirit of Sam Adams.
wanting to make America, and particularly New England, a haven in which the old Romans and the old Puritans could once again walk as they had in the earlier days. And it's very interesting to see that as we come to the American War for Independence and the Declaration of Independence, that the Continental Congress adopts an official song of the American Revolution. If you ask people today, what do you think the official song of the Revolution was? Oh, well, probably Yankee Doodle. No, it wasn't Yankee Doodle. The official song of the American Revolution, all the way from New Hampshire, all the way down to Georgia, was a song by the name of Chester. And I'm just going to give you one verse of Chester. Let tyrants shake their iron rods, and slavers clank their bloody chains. We fear them not, we trust in God, New England's God forever reigns. Notice, by this time, 1776, it's not Georgia's God that we're turning to. It's not Pennsylvania's God. It's not Maryland's God. It's New England's God, the God of the Puritans, who is the God that all Americans turn to for help at this time. And one of the other things that Samuel Adams was famous for at this time was his leadership of what was known as the Black Regiment. The Black Regiment referred to the black-robed Puritan clergy throughout the New England colonies. And it was said that Sam Adams would speak the word in Boston, and the following Sunday that word would be echoed in every Puritan pulpit in New England. And there are those today who would like to reestablish an organization like the Black Regiment of American clergy here today. And Yes, I think it is sorely needed today, but what a leader for American liberty, this man, Samuel Adams. And we're going to see, after we take our break, a little more that Sam Adams does. He serves in the Massachusetts legislature. He serves several terms as governor of Massachusetts. But throughout all of this, he is leading America back to return to Jesus Christ. and. He sees in Christianity the only true hope for American liberty and that the true American sovereign, as he said on July 4th, that we have this day restored the sovereign to the throne. He reigns in heaven and may his kingdom come from sea to shining sea. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
Colonel, it's been wonderful to hear what motivated the founders and what their what their perspective was uh, incident to the Declaration of Independence. And I want to point out, because our audience can't see you, but I notice you have been referencing a book you wrote called Christianity and the Constitution. Could you take just a second and, and just tell us a little bit about that? That is correct. Christianity and the Constitution is available through Baker Bookhouse. It's been in print for 30-some years now. came out in the bicentennial year of the Constitution. Full title is Christianity and the Constitution, the Faith of Our Founding Fathers. And my purpose in writing this book was to go through the beliefs of the Founding Fathers and demonstrate that for the vast majority of them, they were not deists or skeptics or even Unitarians. They were, in fact, Orthodox Christians, actively affiliated with Christian churches, and their Christian beliefs strongly influenced their political convictions. In fact, out of these 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention, we find that 28 of them, just over half, were members of the Church of England. Eight of them were Presbyterian. Seven of them were Congregationalist. Two were Lutheran. Two were Dutch Reformed. Two were Methodist. Two were Roman Catholic. One we put a question mark about. We're not sure. And that leaves about three, or there's about 6%, that you might describe as unorthodox in their beliefs. Anyway, I would encourage people to give this book, Christianity and the Constitution. I think you'll find a great deal, not just about Sam Adams. There's a full chapter about Sam Adams there, but about so many other of these founding fathers as well. But Sam Adams continued after the War for Independence to battle for American liberty. For one thing, he was skeptical of the Constitution. He was afraid that without a Bill of Rights, the Constitution could lead to a means of enslaving Americans. But at the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention, or should I say ratifying convention, when it looked like Massachusetts was probably not going to vote to ratify the Constitution, in the last days of the ratifying convention, Sam Adams came forth from his sickbed and said that there were things in the Constitution that he didn't like, but that he thought it was better than the situation they had at the time. And so he urged support for the Constitution. And with that support, and with that of John Hancock and several others, the Constitution was narrowly ratified in Massachusetts and became the governing document for the United States. We move into the later years. Again, he becomes concerned that America might lose its Christian foundations. And without that Christian zeal and Christian character, not only would the basis for securing American independence be gone, but the basis for preserving American independence would be gone as well. He believed that only a moral and religious people were capable of living in a state of freedom. His cousin John Adams said almost that exact thing at a slightly later time. But Sam Adams believed that unless we preserve our Christian morality, we will not have the kind of moral character that will make religious freedom 
possible in America. And on 1797, on March 29th, at this time he served one last term as governor of Massachusetts. And at this time, he issued a prayer and fasting proclamation for the state of Massachusetts, which was, except for Virginia, the most populous state in the Union at the time. And I think it very significant to read a portion of what he said in that proclamation. He said, and as it is our duty to extend our wishes to the happiness of the great family of man, I cannot conceive, or rather I conceive, that we cannot better express ourselves than by humbly supplicating the supreme ruler of the world, that the rod of tyrants may be broken into pieces, and the oppressed made free, that wars may cease in all the earth, and that the confusions that are and have been among the nations may be overruled by promoting and speedily bringing on that holy and happy period when the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be everywhere established, and all people everywhere willingly bow to the scepter of him who is Prince of Peace. As we approach Independence Day, I hope every one of our listeners here will call upon your own respective church to do something special for Independence Day in the churches that I pastor. We're going to do something special. It'll be the Monday morning or Monday noon after Independence Day. We're going to be having a special lunch at church for all first responders, police, EMTs, others who respond first in time of emergency. We want to let them know how much we appreciate them. And we want to let them know that when they engage in this kind of sacrifice, they're engaging in the kind of sacrifice that Christians have engaged in throughout the ages, and that our Lord, of course, sacrificed himself upon the cross. But we hope by this way that we will show first responders throughout the community that at First Presbyterian Church in Tallahassee and at Woodland Presbyterian Church in Nota Sullivan, they are indeed appreciated and indeed welcome, and we hope that many will feel welcome to attend and to be part of our church. There are so many ways that in your church you could celebrate Independence Day, and one of the things that I'm urging people to do is to recreate the heritage of their own respective communities. Yes, we have a Christian heritage here in America, and certainly we can see where Plymouth, Massachusetts, home of the pilgrims, has a special heritage. But your community has a Christian heritage as well. And I urge you to study that out. Go maybe to church archives, go to city archives, and see what maybe men of God and women of God in the past have done in your community to fight for temperance, to fight for morality, things like this. But... I would certainly urge you to have a celebration in your community in which you celebrate not only the unique Christian heritage of your community, which may be dying out and 
If you isn't preserved now, we may lose sight of it. But also to make others aware of it, to have a celebration. And I've been invited at various times to places like Lincoln, Nebraska, and other communities where they'll have a gathering in the city park. Scouts, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts will come to lead the Pledge of Allegiance and to carry the flag and so on. And drum and bugle corps will be there. They'll have a speaker on patriotic events and other such events. Sometimes a bicycle parade, decorated bicycles, decorated with red, white, and blue, and so on. But in every community in America, we should be honoring the foundation of this nation, and we should be celebrating the 4th of July, not just with fireworks, but with something that tells us what this is all about and what people have done what people have sacrificed to give this nation the freedom that we have here today. Samuel Adams would certainly be very pleased to see us do so today. Sam Adams died in 1803. He was 81 years old, a consistent Republican, that is, advocate of an American Republic with a small r, consistent Republican to the end. And he's buried in the old granary burying ground there in Massachusetts. There were old Endicott lives, an old Puritan cemetery. And his biographer, Miller, concludes his biography by saying, Sam Adams was at last among the Puritans. <laughs> and may our hearts be there as well. And as we celebrate American independence, May we celebrate it in the spirit of Sam Adams, the spirit of an old Roman, an old Puritan, and a true patriotic Christian American.